Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, digital gossips of the world. It's time for us to once again meet down at the virtual back fence and load up on some juicy techno news tidbits. And who better to bring us the good word than the mouthiest newsman of the internet neighbourhood? It's my generous and very forgiving friend, Matthew Diggerson. G'day, Matt. What's been happening over at the Joneses' place? Well, I've been gossiping about lots of things lately, James. It's been very <laughs> exciting, actually. <laughs> the first thing I gossiped about was the Science and Engineering Challenge, which I know ah, yes. you were very involved with. And it's just great seeing the kids there. And there were four days of it, a couple of days of high school, a couple of days of primary school. Yeah, it's a great, great week. Yeah, yeah. and I, I just think so. That's obviously created by the University of Newcastle. They partner up with schools like your own. They partner with Rotary Clubs around the area where they go to or areas where they go to. But I just love watching the kids. So I sat down at a few of the tables with some of the so kids So engaging. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they just, some of them, it was actually quite funny. I was watching one of the electrical circuits and they were trying to balance the electrical circuits out. And I said, so how are you going with the planning of this? And they're, oh, no, we're just plugging in wires and see what works. So <laughs> went, my first thought was, oh, that's not how it's meant to be. And I thought, well. No, that's okay. Like, if yeah. that's how you get to a solution, just by plugging in different things and seeing what lights come on, well, that's fine. And other kids are there writing down bits of paper and seeing how they're going to make it all work, and that's okay as well. But, but, it's but each time it doesn't work, you've learned something new, and you know, you've, you've put that in the memory bank, and, and you you move on, move on from that. And that's right. That's the old Thomas Edison phrase, isn't it? That Mr. Edison, you must be horrified that you've had 10,000 goes at getting a battery. He said, no, no, I now know 10,000 ways that don't work. Don't work yeah. So, same yeah, thing. Yeah, but yeah. I, I do like watching the kids get really engaged in it, and they do have a great time. And a new one this year was the – Paper, no, not paper, glider, paper. The balsa, balsa glider, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the little creation of the people who run the Science Engineering Challenge, the creation that flies the balsa wood planes. Mm. So they went through and told me about some of the processes they went through on that, including safety mechanisms. So it's got a sensor at the front of it. So if someone's standing in front of it, it won't work, which sounds like a pretty sensible thing to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, just all that sort of thing with a couple of spinning wheels. It looked like a bowling machine, a cricket bowling machine to me, where they just had a couple of spinning wheels side by side and then it grabs hold of the balsa wood in the middle and shoots that down the, the train or down the, the channel there. So it sounds like they really get into it as well. Yeah, well, look, um, going back to what you were saying earlier on about the tinkering that goes on, I had an ex-student who came back and talked to me about his experience because he got into robotics and whatnot. So he was working between physicists and engineers and he said it was really interesting to see how they work. So an engineer will grab a piece of paper, do a couple of sketches and a little bit of math there, and then they'll start playing with the tools they've got uh, and the equipment they've got. Whereas the physicist will sit back and they'll want to have worked out absolutely every little detail, every equation. They want to, no surprises in this. They'll have worked everything out by the time they get started. They might not get started for about two or three weeks, but <laughs> when they get started, they'll finally you know, have something work, and then it probably won't work anyway. So the engineer, what I love about engineering is is having the idea and and then just going to work. Seeing what works and what doesn't work. That's a and great, a great comparison, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I'm very much the physicist. So right. whenever my wife wants a job done, <laughs> I um, there is a there is a waiting period. 
That's the greatest excuse I've ever heard. <laughs> no, I'm I use cannot that. start a job without knowing exactly <laughs> everything that could go wrong and of doing all the maths on, on every little part of it. Um, does does yeah. it work with the washing up? Look, I can start the washing up, <laughs> but I've just got to work out the optimal the temperature of the washing up is I just get distracted so easily. <laughs> yeah, I get a couple of plates done and then there's something else uh, happening. Well, you come up with planning <laughs> the best way to do the plates. <laughs> the other thing I want to mention was I've got a little book in my hand, which is not very good for a podcast because they can't see the it's book. It's a good looking book, though, uh, folks. It's Very um, lovely colours on there. But it's the... Italian Wind Parks Travel Guide. Ooh. So this is a travel guide if you're <laughs> going to travel for, through about Italy wind parks. and you want to go and look at wind parks. There's five wind parks in the uh, in Italy that you can go and discover. And it's really a guide, and I'm quoting you from the book, a guide to discover unique and little-known territories that are today one of the most interesting laboratories for the energy transition. Mm. So people that are fascinated by wind parks, wind turbines, Get a copy of this book, presumably, and it's quite a, a thick book. It's probably in the vicinity. I'm just looking for page numbers here. Uh, 140 pages long. I thought maybe five pages would have been yeah. enough to tell you where the <laughs> wind parks right. were, but it's got so much information on each wind park, and you can go and discover all sorts of things about it. And I love that idea, and I do have a bit of a plan. Uh, maybe a few decades will take to realise this plan, but we've got a renewable energy zone near where we are. And Bedangra is where we've already got wind turbines and solar panels and batteries being constructed. And I have this it's vision. It's a super interesting place too. Well, it is, just driving along and looking, looking at them. But imagine some sort of tourism slash education centre built there as part of that. So you could go and visit that. You could see how these all these different components tie into the grid in a little mini example of it, for example. You could have a, a little wind turbine that you blow on. You could see it generating electricity all sorts of things that I can see kids going to from an educational mm. perspective, but parents going along as well, maybe with their kids, but also go, oh, this is all quite interesting, actually, fascinating. So I, I think that's interesting to see some landowners out there having a look at and go, oh, yeah, I could probably generate a little bit of cash extra myself. Well, I think that's exactly right. The, and who knows, maybe they build a, a, a faux wind turbine there that you could abseil down so you could ah. look out at the view from the top <laughs> of it, for example. Anyway, all sorts of things Do there. us to the top of a wind turbine. <laughs> that's, that's it. Why not? Like, you've got these creative ideas that people will come up with, I'm sure, that you'll have people now who go to, I know a couple of solar farms out near Ningen and Nevertire, there are viewing platforms there. Mm. And and look, I, I do like solar panels, but a viewing platform for a solar panel farm, we just, uh, but people go and visit it. People go and stand on the viewing platform and look out across the sea of solar panels that are sitting in front of them. So if people are going to view that from a viewing platform, then having some sort of interactive building there that shows you how these work together, I think maybe there is some sort of market, some sort of potential for that. The way of the future. Well, we're going to kick off this week's look into the future with a quick and ironic glance back over the shoulder into the past. Half a century is a significant slab of time, and it's worth noting that some pretty big things are celebrating their 50th anniversary in 2023. For a start, the Sydney Opera House opened its doors in 1973, so it turns the big 5-0 this year. And in the US, the Watergate hearings kicked off 50 years ago. Now, Richard Nixon would not be the last president to find himself in very hot water, very topical this year in particular. The film The Godfather claimed top gong at the Oscars in 1973, and this little black duck was born in a chilly corner of New England tablelands. And the very first mobile phone call was made by Martin Cooper in New York. I wonder if he was talking about Richard Nixon or the Oscars, Matt. <laughs> well, well, what's the story behind the first mobile phone call? That's really interesting because 
I've heard the story change from Martin Cooper. I've actually talked to Martin Cooper. I was, oh, you have? Yeah. I was you met it, the man? Uh, well, not in person. Okay. By phone, obviously, because that's how you talk to someone <laughs> like right. Martin. But I was going to get him to Australia at one stage to do a, a promotion. Anyway, it turned out he was a bit too old and didn't want to travel all the way to Australia. But seemed like a lovely man. And, and I love the story that he's told over the years about the first phone call. So 3rd of April 1973 was that first phone call. Now, he worked for Motorola at the time. And, the and he wasn't yelling into the phone, buy, buy, sell, sell, blah, 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 like <laughs> no. we used to joke about in the 80s? No, no. Not, until, okay. <laughs> not until a few people on Wall Street started getting phones. But his big rival at the time was Joel Engel, who worked for Bell Laboratories, which was a, a part of AT&T. Now, the competition was going between Bell and Motorola to see who would be able to have this first cellular mobile phone. Bell were probably focusing more on car phone type technology more so than a handheld. Mm. And I say handheld very loosely because you needed to be Arnold Schwarzenegger to lift up one of these oh. handheld devices. Yeah, yeah. So Motorola decided that they thought the more portable version was the better way to go. I remember reading some stories, say, 20 years ago at the 30th anniversary where Martin Cooper told the story that he picked up the phone, sitting on a New York corner, and said to, like, ring Joel Engel, his great competitor, and said, Joel... I'm calling you from a cell phone, or Joel, I'm guess where I'm calling you from now. <laughs> but the latest version at the 50th anniversary said, hey, Joel, I'm calling from a portable cellular phone, which was different to the Bell Laboratories one that was in a car. So I don't know what was actually said. Mm. It was something Either along way, those it was lines. in your face, Joel. I think it was a bit of a gloat rather than, Joel, gee, look, we've really progressed this scientific field quite well, haven't we? I don't think it was like that. No, no, it It wasn't sharing anything about that. There was nothing we about it. No, there was (laughs) none of that at all. So it has changed a little bit over the years, and there's no recording of it. And we have got some great historical recordings, we think, of some other firsts that happened in communication. So back in 1844, Samuel Morse sent a Morse code message, a, Mm -hmm. a message to his assistant, Alfred Vail, that said, what hath God wrought? Mm. A little bit deeper than, hey, Joel, yeah, in your yeah. face. <laughs> you thought long and hard about those words. <laughs> That's right. Alexander Graham Bell to his assistant when he made his first phone call back in 1876. Mr. Watson, come here. Can I want to see in? you. I want to see you. Yeah, that yeah. was really cool, wasn't That's it? That's right. <laughs> and the first text message, Neil Papworth. And Neil Papworth wasn't that high up in the company that he worked for. Uh, he was just I, super fast, was he? He got in there, pushed no, in front of everyone. I, I think it was just, it was Christmas Eve and it was, oh, we'll get around to this and we'll get it done. Oh, Neil, can you just send that message off to the boss, Richard Jarvis, who worked for Vodafone at the time, and he just said, Merry Christmas, which seemed appropriate at the time of the year that it mm, was. So we've got accurate recordings of some of those ones, but we just don't have an accurate recording of the other one. But 1973, it took about 10 years before you could actually go and buy a mobile phone. So that was the first phone mm. call. It was a prototype. It was obviously a Not network. practical. Well, not practical because there would have been one tower, if you like, it would have been one antenna mm. that Motorola would have had set up to tie back into the phone system. Not really that practical there. Ten years later, finally, you had... And it also came with go. a humongous battery pack, didn't it? You had to had a handbag that you had to carry around. Well, this one was a handheld, but it was 1.2 kilograms. So it was a fair old handheld yeah, to right. carry around. Yeah, right. They Later on, they got to the bag phone style that you're mentioning there. But the first one you could finally buy was a Motorola Dynatac 8000X. It was what commonly became known as the brick phone. It was huge. It was a bit smaller than that first one, but it was about 1.1 kilograms, so a little bit lighter, 23 centimetres long (laughs) was was the height of the phone. Wow. And with that huge battery, 
it could give you 30 minutes of talk time. So not that <laughs> impressive. And then you want to recharge it, so 10 hours to recharge. So you do your little 30-minute phone call and then plug in for 10 hours. Right, I can hardly wait to get this phone going again. <laughs> <laughs> so having a few batteries would have been the go. Yeah, maybe 10 or so batteries. I think you were better off just down. going down to Toy World and picking up yourself a pair of uh, a walkie-talkie or whatever. That's maybe, that's right. Uh, the other thing is that they weren't that popular at the time because in today's money, about $21,000. So yeah. you didn't rush out and get them. Status symbol. Status symbol, definitely. And where you could use them, not many places, because the actual carriers had to start to build the mobile phone network. We mm. think we've got it bad now with various black spots as we travel around, where you can imagine then you'd have two corners in New York and a corner in Chicago or a corner in LA that well, you might wonder be able to use it. if there was any people walking around going, oh, this will never catch on. <laughs> I'm There's sure. No, they haven't got the infrastructure for it. Uh, there would be no infrastructure there. How could this possibly ever work? And, of course, now some carriers started to build some other towers. But it certainly changed a bit. We were actually quite early in Australia. We were quite early on the bandwagon. In 1981, we had the 007 system. It was called the... PAMP system, P-A-M-T-S, the Public Automatic Mobile Phone System, but it only worked in a car and it didn't actually hand off cellular to cellular. One of the big advances that was made with the cellular phone network was they reused the same frequencies. When you had non-adjacent cells, you reuse those same frequencies. So it meant that in this cell, I would use so many frequencies, then I'd travel to the adjacent cell and I'd use different frequencies and I'd keep traveling and the next cell along would use those same frequencies again that I had in the first cell. That was the real advancement with the cellular network. That system back in 981, which all numbers in that system started with 007, which was probably someone having a joke, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Surely from a James Bond perspective, someone went, this would be told good by MI5 to use that. Um, yeah, yeah, probably that's right. But 987, we actually got the proper cellular system. So it started in New York in 983, the cellular system that we kind of know today or the, the latest version of. But we got it in 1987, so not too bad. And you mentioned the Opera House from 1973. Well, the launch in 1987 was with skydivers coming down and landing there at the go. Opera House. And the Minister for Communications of the day, I don't remember who it was, but he had the mobile phone there and communicated from there and said, isn't this wonderful? So, uh, yeah, the Opera House was involved again in 1987. Anyway, we've gone on from there. That was AMPS and GSM and CDMA and 3G, 4G, 5G. But Martin Cooper still has something to say and he's still talking about phones and talking about where he thinks they'll go. 94 years of age is at the moment. Oh, wow. But he still had a few things to say about where artificial intelligence will take us with mobile phones, augmented reality, holograms. He said in the next 50 years, as much as we look back now and go, wow, it's changed just a little bit from those first days in 50 years' time, his prediction which is probably pretty safe, is that people in that day will look back and go, what, they had that sort of phone, a smartphone, all those apps on there? How silly is that? That just seems crazy. But it is better. I remember talking to one of my young staff members one time and I said something along the lines of, before we had a mobile phone, and then the staff member pulled me up, hold on, what do you mean before we had a mobile phone? Haven't they just been part of your life like electricity and cars ever since you were born? I went, no, 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 no. When I was young, if you want to meet a friend at a cafe or at the pub, you had to organise a time. Well in advance. That's right. to call them at their house when they were home. And then if you were going to meet them at 10 o'clock and you turned up at 5 past 10, oh, they'd already Some been and gone. Or, yeah. or should you wait for them? Should you try and catch up to them? It wasn't as simple as send a text, hey, I'm here, I'm a few minutes late, sorry. So that blew this young staff member's mind because they just thought their whole social life would have disintegrated if yeah. they had to be able to plan so far in advance. <laughs> so 50 years, as they just a, a couple of weeks ago, 50 years to the, to the day when Martin Cooper made that first phone call. 
it's fair to say that I think we've been pretty fascinated, but even Martin Cooper has been fascinated by what's changed in that time. Now, here's something I had no idea about up until now. If your game is cybersecurity and you want to know how strong your product is, you clearly want to lure the most talented cyber vagrants in the world all together in a massive, organised hackathon with a big juicy carrot prize for the one who can bust your cyber protection wide open at the end. Matt, the victors took home a racing new Tesla and half a million bucks, but what was the method behind this madness? It's not bad, is it? They gave away over a million dollars in prize money, plus, as you said, a nice Tesla Model 3. The competition is called Pawn to Own, PWN number two, OWN, Pawn to Own. And the idea is that, yes, you can be a legal hacker. You can go along and test out products. It's a job you can have that's legitimate. That's right, as a hacker. So all those people out there that think they want to be hackers but don't like the idea of a prison cell, well, this is the thing for and, you. And if you've got that vagrant streak about you, there you, go. <laughs> you don't Perfect. care about. <laughs> and the idea here is that various companies, as you said, might want to test out their products. And the rules are essentially that you get to win the thing that you hack if you successfully hack it, oh, right. plus the prize money. So you can try and hack a $10 watch or a $60,000 Tesla. Well, let's go and try the Tesla. Thanks very much because yeah, okay. you might win the Tesla. And that's exactly what they did this time. Now, Tesla has been very quick to point out that the hackers that were successful in getting into the Tesla were not able to take control of it. So don't expect to be driving on a Tesla one day and suddenly someone starts laughing through the speakers and the steering wheel starts driving crazily and they brake and they accelerate oh. and do whatever. What they were able to do was they were able to get into the entertainment system and they had to be nearby. So they're actually using Bluetooth to get in rather than the internet connection because all Teslas are connected to the internet, of course. So they were able to use Bluetooth. So if someone's kind of hanging around near your Tesla and then your radio or your stereo starts playing some different tunes and they're sitting there laughing two metres away from you, you'd probably go, hmm, that might be the guy there that's <laughs> doing something My wife's constantly playing. stealing the Spotify music on me. So I'll be driving along and then, bang, the music changes. And it's because my wife at home has decided on her iPad, it's a problem with having, sharing a Spotify account. Well, that's, that's, that's <laughs> one problem. And you can also do it with a Tesla, of course. People can actually look at, your wife could look at what music you're playing while you're driving yeah, along so she could right. change that yeah, as well. Yeah. So, so, But I'm not, well, maybe your wife is a hacker. Maybe she's just hacking. Maybe the Tesla. That's it. That's it. <laughs> she deserves to win a Type 3. <laughs> she might. Exactly right. So they were able to get in. They were able to play around with the entertainment system. They had to be nearby. So I don't think there's a huge risk. But still, Tesla don't like the idea of this. So from their perspective, they gave away the Tesla Model 3 and said, thanks very much. We'll now go and okay. fix that vulnerability. Yeah, and, and that's what all of the companies were there to try and do, to try and make their product better. So you had companies like Oracle, Microsoft, Google, Zoom, Adobe, all basically going through and being part of this competition. There were there was $100,000 given away for a couple of bugs in Microsoft software, uh, seventy five grand another company won for exploiting some bugs in Microsoft Teams. Uh, Oracle, their product, they had a, a particular product that another company won $80,000. So basically there were 27 unique bugs found across mm. the range of products that various contestants in it won some money from. So I didn't know about the competition either. Sounds like a fascinating competition. My son's home from uni at the moment. I'll go and get him onto it and see if he wants to win himself a car. So and, and somewhere, somewhere in the world, there's a 14-year-old boy who's driving around in a new Model 3 Tesla. Right. Good luck to him. <laughs> I 
Hyundai's Ioniq 6 is out, and Matt, you've been eyeing it off with big, wide, googly eyes. What's the prospective Ioniq 6, 6 owner got to look forward to now? Well, yes, I must admit I sold my Ionic 5. Very happy with the Ionic 5. Did a great job, but I do like shiny new technology things. Mm-hmm. And when I saw the Ionic 6, that's right, I, I thought I've, I've got to have a bit of a look at one of those. Now, what they've done quite cleverly, actually, let's go back a step. Kia and Hyundai share a common EV platform. So if you buy a Kia EV6 or an Ionic 5, for example, the platform, so the batteries, the motors, the the basics of those two cars are basically the same. Hyundai and Kia, I don't know the exact legal So are we legal towards some sort of standardisation here, perhaps? Well, certainly some companies are going to do that. I know, for example, Sony and Honda are working together, Toyota and Subaru are working together, because the R&D required to go and do everything yourself mm. from an EV perspective makes it very difficult, so you might team up. So Kia and, and Hyundai, again, both South Korean companies, I don't know the exact legal arrangements there, but they are sharing bits of their IP. So you go and buy those two cars and basically you're choosing a little bit of difference there in terms of, let's call it the lid. What goes on top of that car is a bit different and they're basically selling their Kia or their Hyundai based on that. What they've done with the the Hyundai Ionic 6 is they've taken the same basics as the Ionic 5. So the battery size is the same, the motors are the same, but they've said, how can we make this car even better than the Ionic 5. Now, it is a slightly different shape. It's a sedan shape more than a mini SUV shape, which is how I describe the Ionic 5. But they've first of all said range is one thing that scares people. So how can we make the range better without just chucking a bigger battery and a bigger battery means more weight. You've got to redesign the suspension. Bigger battery means more expense. It starts to become too expensive for people. What else can we do about it? So they worked on the drag coefficient. They've now got the drag coefficient of this car down to 0.21. Now, to give you an idea, when you look at Lamborghinis, Ferraris, some of those really high-performance cars, they're always trying to get their drag coefficient down around that 0.2, 0.19. So 0.21 is kind yeah, of that same sort of area. There. Yeah, that's right. right. And obviously... It's like an arrow. Exactly right. And and we talked about in the last podcast... Your speed, as you, when you double your speed, you quadruple your air resistance. So getting your car slipperier to get better range out of it is obviously a big focus. So they've been able to extend the range, and I'll get to the range in a minute and what they've extended it out to, but they've better extend the range by first of all bringing the drag coefficient down. They've then worked on some of the other parts of it, so the battery modules, for example. So even though the battery modules the same for those Ionic 5, the Ionic 6, the EV, the Kia EV6, they've tried to get to the point where they're using less wiring. So you've got less resistance overall. Now you're talking about minuscule differences here, but just by basically making the batteries a bit more compact in the way they're packing them in, they've been able to get 7% better energy density out of those. So we're talking about just small efficiencies here, a little bit better drag coefficient, a little bit better in the actual wiring. So you start to add all those up, and then you take a car, the old Ionic 5, that had a range in the two-wheel drive version of about 480 kilometres, you jump up to the Ionic 6, they're claiming a range of about 580 kilometres. Oh, right, so they've improved another. it almost 100 kilometres, yeah, right. which is pretty impressive. Now, when you get to 580 kilometres, yeah, we've talked about this before as well, at highway speed, I guarantee it won't get 580. Hmm. Running around town, running around a city, you're probably going to get 580. You might even get better than 580. It depends on the testing and what speed they do it at. But that's the critical thing for an EV. It's the speed you're driving it at. And I've had people say, oh, what about when you're stuck in traffic in Sydney? 
well, that's exactly where an EV shines because yeah. when it's sitting still, the air conditioning might be going, the lights might be on, but it's not. You using. might have some music playing, but that's low oh, energy. That's isn't right. It? Yeah, I actually did read one thing one time where someone said, "Oh, it'd be hopeless having an EV. Imagine if you left the headlights on one night when you're out at dinner." And someone had done the calculations and they said, for a normal EV, that would take you three months to flatten the battery. So <laughs> things like the stereo, those type of things on, sure, they're using a little tiny bit of battery power, but really not that much. Whereas a normal car sitting in traffic is running the engine, or it might be one of the new stop-start engines, but then mm. it's using that when it starts the engine up and going on at low speed, it's not very efficient. But the efficiency of an EV is the same no matter what speed you're doing. It's really just the air resistance. Mm. At highway speeds, look, I'd be guessing, but I would say based on my Ionic 5 performance, I think you'd probably get maybe 480 kilometres at 110 kilometres an hour, or that sort mm. of speed, but I'll let you know when I finally get one of these and see how it goes. But And, and between charges, I mean, you're not going to um, run this down to zero uh, on those big long trips. You, you might get it down to maybe 15% or whatever. Um, yeah, that the, you get quite away and, and charge it up and then continue on your way. Uh, it's getting making more and more sense to get yourself an EV. It does, doesn't it? And you probably, it's probably not safe to jump in the car and drive, let's say it was 480 kilometres, that's not safe to jump in the car and drive that distance without having some brake. Yeah. Well, just plan your brake near a EV charger and away you go. So I'm actually quite impressed with where Hyundai is going. I think... They're taking it to Tesla. They're calling this a Model 3 Beta. I'm not sure if it's a Model 3 Beta, but at least it's a competitor. And that's what we need. We need mm. more competition. And Tesla's had it pretty much to themselves for a while now. That's right. What I really love to see is lots of companies, whether they be traditional car companies or new car companies, I don't really care, but lots of car companies bring in lots of new models, lots of ideas, lots of innovation, lots of things that are different. And then that just amps up the game for everyone and we get better products out of it all. And um, cheaper as well. They, they seem to be coming down in price a little bit too, yeah? Yeah, they are. And I think the uh, a couple of the initiatives from our governments have been helpful. The FBT exemption for cars below the extra high luxury car tax level for EVs, so about 85 grand at the moment that is roughly. Don't hold me to that. Go and check with your accountant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you also get there's some rebates back from various state governments and free stamp duty and a whole range of different initiatives there. So they've got some cutoffs. And I know the Ionic 6, for example, they make that in a, a two-wheel drive, a four-wheel drive and a four-wheel drive with some extra perks about it. But I know the four-wheel drive, they actually change the pricing of that to get it $5 below the FPT exemption so that people can buy that and still get that FPT exemption. So the manufacturers are looking at that, and if that means they bring their prices down a little bit just to fit in with our laws, then that sounds like a good thing Being as well. soup up for Australia. Now, is there anything more satisfying than a window you've just cleaned, looking through back at that spotless perfection? Well, if there is, I don't want to know about it, because the work that goes into a perfectly clean window is almost soul-destroying. There is always a spot, a streak, or a smudge that is inexplicably on neither the inside nor the outside of the window, or at least the smudge that will metamorphose several hundred times like the pink ring around the cat in the hat's bathtub, if you know what I mean. A clean window is satisfying because you suffered the heartache and you earned it through sheer dogged determination. Matt... You're now going to tell me that in 2023, there's a better way. Well, is it as satisfying if you had something else? Not even another person, but another device do it for you. If you look at it and it's clean, do you care how it got that clean? Well, no, you don't. (laughs) 
No. Okay, we're on. We're okay uh, then. And Everything's so when you're cleaning the window, you know, at the end of this, if I get it right, I'm going to stand back and it's going to look like there's no window there. Right. It's going to be awesome. But well, anyway, I've having a clean window is the best thing. Right. Well, the Winbot W1 Pro is what you need, James. It's like a Roomba for a window. You tether <laughs> it for a start because you want it to be safe. So you've got a, some little hook that you put up on the wall. You'll tether it. And then you'll put it on the window. It does have a cord, so it doesn't run just on batteries. And you plug the cord in and say, clean my window. It then uses some suction to hold it against the glass. Obviously, it's got a nice smooth surface to do that against, so it's confident in that. And it's got a reservoir in there. It squirts some water in and then moves across and cleans the window as it goes. It's got a very clever algorithm built in that it will go through and make sure it cleans every particular part of it. goes up and across the edges and goes across the middle and at the end of it all it beeps and let you know it's done <laughs> and the only problem is you've got to lift it off and take it to the next window it doesn't do that for you automatically inside and outside it's a bit of a hassle because you have to move it all the way around to the outside of the window as well that's all right if i can let it get to its job it gives me a beep when it's done i don't mind swapping it around right yeah, well that's good you're the I perfect just... customer for it then so. <laughs> i'm getting one now i can see skyscrapers obviously a oh, yeah, big one. Yeah. job to do and people are employed, obviously. Sorry to those guys that are employed doing that because their jobs may not be safe for that much longer. And they're probably very good at what they do and they don't have, suffer the same heartache, heartache that I suffer. Maybe not, but they maybe could find something else better to do with their time if they didn't have to do that particular job. Uh-huh. But the next challenge will be, when it finishes, getting it from one window to the next. If you've got a big bit of glass, that's fantastic. It'll go and do that big bit of glass. But when it gets to the edge and it's finished the whole thing, getting it out and across and over to the next window... It's not a drone. It hasn't got a drone mm. built into it. It's got to have some way of getting there. For the moment, it's challenge on one accepted. <laughs> We've only got our first generation. I mean, this is brand new technology, right? Exactly right. Exactly right. Just so someone out there in and wait for the next one is obsessed with windows like you are and said that rumor thing. I like that idea. Let's do that to a window as well. And they've done it, and it's there, and you can buy it right now and see how it goes. It's, I don't need more glass to go and buy one of these. I don't have enough glass <laughs> to go and use it with. <laughs> There's a lot that goes into keeping the modern Navy ship shape. Granted, in the 21st century, there's a little less swabbing decks, tarring the mainstay and greasing the capstan than there was in days of old. But nevertheless, naval vessels of the modern age battle the same salty elements as Admiral Nelson did, and thorough, regular doses of maintenance will spare you and your crew a trip to Davy Jones's locker. Of course, the boats are quite bigger these days. So if you, as a fresh-faced seaman apprentice in 2023, had the rather vital job of, say, inspecting the hull of an aircraft carrier for defects, you might hope that there was some kind of gadget to make the job a little bit more speedy and more reliable. Matt, this seems like we're on a bit of a theme here. How is technology saving hapless young sailors from being (laughs) keelhauled? Well, I do worry about not having to swab the decks anymore because how are they going to be punished? Surely that's a punishment in the Navy. If you've if you've done something wrong, it's your job's to swab the decks swab for the, the decks. next week. Yeah, <laughs> and now it'll be your job's to watch the Roomba thing swab the decks for the next week. That's your job. This isn't swabbing the decks. This is doing the work on the hulls. And again, it's, it's operating. It's a robot that's operating on the vertical rather than on the... Yeah, that's right. So there does seem to be a bit of a theme there. 
between the last story and this one, but it is a bit like a Roomba. But what this is doing is inspecting the hull because you don't want to be out there in the middle of the ocean and then find you've got a crack in the hull. So they mm. bring ships in, not just Navy ships, but this is focused on the Navy, their solution. They bring ships in and inspect them. And in the past, they had a so manual process. Yeah, someone on a on some sort of a swing or, or hoist that's going around and, and looking at the thing, I'm guessing? They use some technology as well. They'd go and do some x-rays or use some sort of sensors. Maybe they use some magnets to see if there's less magnetic pull or Fair some enough. sort of force in some areas there. But they used to do that with, in the past, about 6,000 data points per hull, which seems like a lot, yeah. but the hulls are pretty big. So they're Maybe obviously inspecting it at certain distances apart, hoping that if they find some sort of abnormality here, they might then extend it around that particular area. But they've now got Roomba-type devices and they use magnetic connection to actually attach to the hull and then start moving around the hull. They've gone from 6,000 data points to 3.3 million data points. So that seems like it's a bit more accurate, Mm. gives you a little bit more of a reading. Even for doing rudders, so when you've got some pretty big rudders on some of these ships, they've got 463,000 data points they get from a rudder. <laughs> I'm just thinking of the poor side that they go out there and, oh, sorry, the robot's broken. We need you to go inspect. I want you to do 3.3 million points. Right. <laughs> We're used to it now. We're used to having 3.3 million. And here's your clipboard to check them off. So there's yeah. the new punishment. <laughs> right. Gotcha. It's, a big check, it's a big clipboard, isn't it? <laughs> so this is where we're getting to now. This is using sensors, cameras, ultrasonics. And again, what they're looking for, obviously, is just to find anywhere that it's not quite the same. They might have had a collision with something. They might have hit an iceberg somewhere. There might be some rust, although I'd find it hard to believe they'd get rust because it would surely be painted Mm. on such a regular basis. But still, maybe something happens sometimes. I wonder how easily the paint deteriorates over time. Yeah, it could be deteriorated. You could have had a a minor collision and it just chipped enough paint off that you get a bit of rust in there. But again, they bring these into dock. They put these devices on go and have a cup of tea, come back, and then look at the data to see what they might need to do, if anything, and then send it back out again. The reason they've done this is because the Navy has a backlog of 280 ships at the moment that need this work done. Mm. So they obviously didn't have enough people in the Navy doing this work and said, we better turn to technology to provide a solution. You can imagine it happened to the Navy won't be long before it'll be happening to a range of ships out there because surely this has got to be a better solution, cheaper Mm. and more comprehensive to give us safer shipping across the world. So technology to the rescue again. Here we go. Who would have thought? Chat GPT has come to the rescue of one hapless student in the UK, but not in a way that you might have predicted. Far from doing this girl's homework, ChatGPT has stepped up to get her off a parking fine. Matt, AI has become more versatile by the day, <laughs> hasn't not? I'm not suggesting that people should do this with their local council, of course. <laughs> but young Millie... But Houghton, if you're stuck for words, <laughs> that's right. ChatGPT will get you out of any problem. Now, Millie knew that she shouldn't have been given a parking fine. She was a student, doesn't have much money. She was studying hard, for example, at the time. Didn't have enough time, but she really wanted to make a complaint to York City Council, her local council, for the £60 parking fine that she had. £60, that's That's, a few drinks. That's significant when you do the conversion to Australian dollars, yeah. Well, well that, and also when you're a student and you want to celebrate after exams, that's (laughs) a couple of drinks you could buy with that, presumably. Not that we're recommending you drink to excess here, of course, James. But 
she was a bit worried about this and she just didn't have the time and she was a bit stressed and she said, I'll turn to ChatGPT, why not? She gave the basics to ChatGPT and said, give me a letter that will get me out of this fine and it formed a perfectly legitimate letter that took the basics, the details that had been given to Tore it. Tore at the heartstrings of the person at the other end of the... Uh, it, it was a very personalised response that was given to then be sent off to York City Council and they sent back a letter and said, sorry, Millie, we'll withdraw that fine. Everything's good. Now, Millie didn't have the heart to say, well, that's great. I didn't even write the letter, so thank you for being sucked in by technology. <laughs> so you're worried about university lecturers and teachers being sucked in by their students. Well, here's a city council that's been sucked in by an AI that's created a letter that got her out of a parking fine. Now, there must have been some legitimate reason that A, Millie said, I don't want to pay that parking fine, and B, that York City Council said, yeah, that's a legitimate reason. So presumably there was some fact behind I'm not saying that you get charged with murder and you did it and you send a, a letter with ChatGPT to the judge and everything's okay. <laughs> but obviously people are using ChatGPT for so many more things. ChatGPT so far has racked up 100 million users since it launched in November. Wow. We're in April. Yeah, now, yeah. you think about and it's not a social media site, but you think about some of the big social media sites, the Facebooks, the Twitters, even YouTube, some of those 100 million users, they took a long time to get there for 100 million users. So for ChatGPT to have 100 million users is just incredible. So anyway, it's interesting. Lots of talk. I know we are talking about ChatGPT a lot, but it is the thing that everyone wants to know about from a technology perspective. The number of questions that I get randomly asked about ChatGPT and about what I think about it and the future of it, it's obviously something that everyone is thinking about. Maybe ChatGPT is telling people to think about it. Who knows? Maybe, maybe we need people to, to um, send in emails and whatnot uh, telling us all about the creative ways they've used ChatGPT. That wouldn't be bad, actually. Any send of my it. students um, talking about how they used it for their assignments, um, uh, yeah. Definitely send those. I want to have words with you. Ask at techtalk.digital. <laughs> is where you send those emails to. I'd love to hear about some of the creative, creative ways. uses of chat That's right. And still on the subject of AI, chatbots are now entering the realm of therapy for people seeking advice and perhaps a little bit of conversation. Matt, it seems logical that this should happen, but there's still an element of, I don't know, some creepiness about pouring your heart out to an AI bot. I wonder whether some people would be more comfortable pouring their heart out to an inanimate object rather than another human like being. Like hugging a teddy bear, perhaps. Maybe. And, and surely if you're sitting there with, and some people would sit there with a psychologist or a counsellor and maybe feel they were being a little bit judged by them when they poured their heart mm. out, whereas I assume that having some sort of chatbot counsellor is probably not going to judge you in the same way. But it's easy to get very sucked in that you're having a conversation with someone real. I actually was using ChatGPT just the other day and I asked a particular question and the answer I got back, I didn't think seemed right. And you've still got to apply the common sense filter when you get your answers mm. back because sometimes ChatGPT gets it completely wrong. And I actually questioned ChatGPT and I said, I thought it would have been more and kind of along the lines of what I was thinking. And ChatGPT came back and said, I'm sorry, I apologise, the last information I gave you doesn't seem to be correct. Here is what I've now found with further research, and it's the correct answer. So, so ChatGPT's got manners as well. Very much so, and I find myself <laughs> using manners with ChatGPT. Didn't throw it back in your face where well, you can stick that where it fits, mate. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but I, I do, I find myself saying, can you please give me this? And I'm thinking, I'm saying please. And, I, and sometimes I'll even, when I get the answer, I want to say thank you, and then it'll give me a nice little response. I'm going, 
It's a computer I'm talking to. What yeah, am I doing? Right. <laughs> so ah. I think people... We've from, humanized this thing. We have, absolutely right. So why not humanize the process when we've got counselling? Now, we've got some wonderful counselling services here in Australia. Lifeline is the first one that comes to my mind mm. where we've got lots of people, lots of volunteers sitting on the end of a phone doing some wonderful work out of the goodness of their heart. And there are some people who are paid as well, obviously, for all of that. But... There is a huge demand and a there are times demand, when people yeah. wait when they're at a very critical point in their life and they make a phone call and they're on hold. I assume that you could scale this up fairly quickly and that's probably one of the attractive things, things to me. You could actually have that process. Now, one here in particular is called Replica. It's a US chatbot and they've got 2 million active users. Now, it has been going for a few years, but obviously they're getting better and better as they go. And so... It's basically got users that are kids, it's got users that are lonely adults, even people that are a bit stressed about a job interview coming up. So mm. all these different things that they've got there and they're having conversations with it. Now, the World Health Organization, who says there are approximately one billion people across the world with a mental disorder. So if you can start to get these people feeling more comfortable and you don't have to use a chatbot, if you still feel more comfortable seeing your friendly counsellor, your friendly psychologist, Billy Bob, then... Still go and do that. Hmm. But there might be some people who like this idea. So what do you do? How do you get to the point where you give some sort of authorization? And that's a really big question. We know that you're a psychologist because you've got your university degree and you have joined an association, so we've got all that information there. But for a chatbot, what do we know about you? What do we know about the <laughs> advice that you're giving out to people who come along and ask you questions? Are you giving the right advice? Are you telling them to go do something that might be harmful to themselves or harmful to others. So that's mm. probably one thing the industry is calling out for, saying, well, probably sounds like it's okay, but we want some way of knowing. Need some checks and balances. Yeah, that's right. Because, well, what advice has been given out? I don't know. So it sounds quite fascinating. But this is where we're headed, James. We'll see well, so many different I things I guess people used. have been Googling for advice for, for ages and ages. Um, it's been going on for a decade at least or more. Um, and maybe that's why we have such... Oh, um, heavy conspiracy theories going on around as well. I don't know. Look, uh, I'm about to dive down a rabbit hole myself, <laughs> so I'll be <laughs> careful right. about that. Yeah, anyway, it is quite fascinating where we're going to see AI, chat GPT, various chatbots pop up in our everyday society. I can't begin to imagine, but it's certainly mm. going to be places we don't necessarily expect it. Hydrogen power has taken another major step forward recently with Norway launching the first hydrogen-powered ferry. Matt, no surprises that the Scandinavians have led the world in this new generation of green energy transport. Well, they do have a goal to have all new cars in Norway, zero emission by 2025. So that sounds pretty impressive. Wow, that's so soon. <laughs> it is, it is, isn't it? Yeah, so within two years, you won't be able to buy a petrol or diesel-powered car in Norway. But it's not just cars. The Norwegians are smart enough to know that you've got other things that are creating CO2 Can you well. imagine the snobbery in the car park when you pull up in your uh, petrol-powered <laughs> car and everyone's looking at you, oh, you're like putting on the <coughs> cost and all that sort of stuff? You wouldn't want to do it, would you? <laughs> you? <laughs> the shame of it all. Right. You'd put on your, your cap and your, yeah. your, glasses your glasses and get out and then here. five metres away you take them off and go, oh, what's that car over there? <laughs> so, And that's probably a good thing. Let's yeah. get to the point where we start shaming people. But there is a new vessel 
in Norway at the moment, which is carrying passengers as we speak. It's an 82.4 metre long vessel, 300 passengers, 80 cars it can carry. It's being used to already ferry people around, or not around Norway, but in certain parts of Norway. And the, the good part about this here is that we've got some problems to solve, I think, with hydrogen, but people are using them already, and these are obviously engineers, not physicists, that are doing this work, because mm. they've just said, well, look, it's close enough, we'll just get in and start using it and see how it goes. The big problem, we'll of do course... do the fix-up later on. <laughs> that's right. The big problem, of course, with hydrogen is storing it. If you want to store liquid hydrogen, you've got to have it in some sort of pressurised container. You might need to have it at certain temperatures, at obviously very cold temperatures. I'm not sure exactly whether they're doing pressure or temperature or both to store hydrogen on this particular ship. At least with a ship, you've got a fair bit of extra space that you could probably store that hydrogen a bit easier than, say, in a vehicle, for example. But I still think hydrogen will be a good way for transport, for shipping, for long-range trucking, maybe for planes, but there might be some other solutions that come along for planes. But certainly when you've got that ability to store hydrogen and then refuel quickly, shipping and trucking, I can see hydrogen definitely being used there. In Norway, it's already happening, so don't be surprised. You get on a ferry one day, you get on some ship some day, not too far away, Mm. and it'll be powered by hydrogen. Of course, the most important thing is to produce the hydrogen with some form of renewable power, not burn coal to produce Mm. the hydrogen in the first place. And not to be outdone by the Norwegians, a New York-based startup company is looking at powering their ships with ammonia. Matt, this podcast has gone very nautical this week. (laughs) um, What's ammonia got that hydrogen doesn't? The ability to be stored a bit easier. Now, ammonia is a matter of nitrogen and hydrogen, probably mm-hmm. NH4. Sounds NH3. Right. NH3, thank you. So you've got nitrogen, you've got hydrogen. Well, you want the hydrogen out. So the trick is you can store ammonia easier than you mm. can store hydrogen in tanks on whatever it might be. Because it's liquid at room temperature. Yeah, so that that's fine, fantastic. But then I've got to get the hydrogen out of that. Now, how much power am I going to use of the power that I've got available from the hydrogen in mm. the mixture, in the solution, do I waste more power getting it out than I do than I actually get out of it? Is it a, a negative equation, which is a complete waste of time? No, it's not. But in the past, it's been a bit too power intensive. Now, this particular company, Amogy, A-M-O-G-Y, believes that they've got their secret IP in what they're calling the ammonia cracking. I'm not sure if that's really a technical term. but it Sounds good to me. <laughs> it sounds good, doesn't it? And so they've got a very efficient way so they say, to extract hydrogen from the ammonia, hence the ammonia cracking. So they've done a few demonstrations so far. They actually powered a drone, a five-kilowatt system on a drone. Now, again, you can imagine if you try to put hydrogen tanks on a drone, Mm. you'd have some fairly heavy tanks to contain that hydrogen, which makes the drone not that great to fly. But they've done a demonstration with a drone. They've done a 100-kilowatt tractor demonstration, a 300-kilowatt semi-trailer demonstration, and they've basically got this ability now with a one megawatt system where they've put it into a tugboat. Again, probably using a tugboat in the short term because it's not having to go a long way. But their job, Energy believes their job is not to go and build the actual transportation devices, not to build the trucks or the ships or the drones or whatever it might be. They're doing that as a demonstration. They believe what they've got is the solution to using ammonia and let other people build the actual device, and Mm. they'll just provide the propulsion or the ammonia cracking. 
presumably they're not talking about the ammonia cracking too much because that might be a bit secret and that might give it away to their competitors. But again, we're seeing all these different solutions, aren't we? We're seeing hydrogen being used yeah. in Norway. We're seeing ammonia being used here. We're seeing batteries and different types of batteries. A whole range of different solutions that are coming out there. I don't know what the finance will be. And if I had to guess, I'd say the finance will be a combination of depending on the circumstances, depending on what you actually need. I still think cars with EV make a lot of sense, whereas trucks with hydrogen or ammonia might make more sense. But it's pretty interesting to see how we go. And again, it's that... Cleverness, isn't it? We want hydrogen. Oh, damn, it's a bit hard to store hydrogen. Oh, hold on. There's hydrogen and ammonia. Let's go and use that. How do we do that? And so again, you go, you you solve one problem and then you create other problems. And then we're humans. We're good at solving problems. So we'll keep solving these problems. And enough heads uh, working on a problem, you come up with a solution. Absolutely right. And that rounds off another shiny new episode of Tech Talk for another week. We'll pop that one up on the top shelf, I think, Matt. Absolutely. They're all top shelf, aren't they? Please, James, please. (laughs) I reckon we had a little something for everyone today, provided that people are into boats and alternative energy and clean windows and vertical operating robots and such. Thanks for tuning in once again, folks. I always find it so alluring taking a peek around the corner into potential directions of the future, and I'm glad that you've decided to join us for the ride. I'm James Eddy, wishing you a fantastic week ahead, and we look forward to catching you once again in another seven days for another cracking episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Take care. Take care, even, and we'll see you then.